HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good morning and welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. My guest today is Wilson Tang, the owner and operator of several New York City restaurants and concepts. The flagship of his growing restaurant group is Namwa Tea Parlor, which he took over in 2011 from his Uncle Wally and infused with new life and excitement and a few hints of modernity while maintaining the classic elements of the menu, dining room, and overall vibe. In addition to Namwa Tea Parlor, which opened nearly 100 years ago, he operates Namwa Nolita and Namwa Kauai, both fast casual concepts, and Namwa 2, which is a casual late night bar that serves food from chef Jonathan Wu, who has also been a guest on this program before. We'll be talking about what it's like to defy your parents' wishes and get into the restaurant business anyways, how a business degree can be helpful in the epic competition of New York City, and talking about diversification and navigating the world of expansion. Wilson, welcome to the line. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let's start with Namwa Tea Parlor and your Uncle Wally. Uh, take us back to 1950. Tell us how he started there, and uh, how does your uncle's development in the restaurant kind of lead to what has happened today? Well, um, so my Uncle Wally actually, just through the immigration route, uh, made his way to New York. And um, I think as a, for every first-generation uh, immigrant, um, working at a restaurant is not a desire. It's almost you had to, not because you wanted to. And that's that's a big that's a big deal, actually, um, the wanting to or having to. So he basically had to. You know, he's um, someone coming from another country, um, you know, doesn't have control of, doesn't speak English. 
Um, so he worked as a dishwasher at, at the tea parlor for the original family that owned it, uh, the Choi family, and just kind of worked his way through it from dishwasher to cook to manager. And eventually in 74, he bought the, the business and the building from the previous, previous family. Um, and from 74, you know, he just kind of ran it through the, um, the decades. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of wholesale uh, at one point in the 70s and 80s, was huge on wholesale. And, um, Does less that of, mean like making um, like dim sum dumplings and then freezing them and shipping them or distributing them to restaurants? Or? So it, at, at that time, it wasn't even dim sum um, and dumplings. It was uh, more mooncakes. Mm-hmm. So we, we were big on like um, mooncakes with like the red, uh, red bean filling or the lotus paste filling. And he would make all of that in-house. And it wasn't until like the 80s where like commercial trade between China and the U.S. opened up. And, um, you know, mooncakes and things of that uh, preserved bakery items started coming over from from China and that's when he saw like the business decline and that kind of changed it over into more dim sum and tea so it you know through the decades I want to say like you see the business like it it has its ebbs and flows Um, it was primarily wholesale for a lot of it and then um, you know less less retail and then more retail and now all retail basically for those listening that that are not really sure what the moon pies are, can you uh, can you explain kind of what those consist of? I, I feel like um, if you've never been to a Chinatown Bakery, it's it's probably not what they're expecting. Yeah, so it's it's a very um, kind of flaky uh, dough um, that is actually pressed into like a mold, and then inside this uh, mooncake um, pastry. Um, is like some usually something sweet, like a lotus paste or a, um, a red bean. Um, usually also with a uh, egg yolk in it, and it would be all pressed into this mold, and then the, the pastry will be folded over, and then kind of smacked. The, the actual mold will be smacked out onto like a a, cook, a, a bake sheet and, and just baked uh, with a lot of um, fat, like lard or um, an egg, egg wash, and it's just. Um, something t- traditionally ate, uh, eaten during uh, Mooncake Festival, but it's really a good, like a very old school snack uh, that that uh, people in my culture actually really enjoy. From what your Uncle Wally told you in the 70s and 80s, what was uh, Doyer Street like? What was Chinatown like in those years? Uh, now it's it's so heavily trafficked by not only New Yorkers that live there and utilize it every day as their normal neighborhood, but also a huge amount of tourist population yeah. that comes there to experience, uh, we can talk about later, whether it's an authentic or maybe an yeah. inauthentic Chinatown experience. But uh, what has your Uncle Wally told you about what it was like in, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, before maybe you were too young to, right, to, right. to remember? Well, it was definitely a different time um in new york um chinatown in particular doyer street was very very chinese uh i think ch- uh, chinatown in general in the 70s and 80s were was very chinese it was really a uh, hub 
for um, Chinese people to get together and have a place to shop, to eat, to gather. And um, that, that had, it, there was also like bad parts of it too, where, you know, there was a lot of kind of like gang violence and um, uh, rival triads um, during that time. So uh, on Doyer Street particularly, it was, uh, that's where a lot of those guys hung out. Uh, because it is the, um, it's where Chinatown started. You know, Doyers, Pell, Mott Street. Those are where the this epicenter of where Chinatown was. So, you know, for me growing up, it was don't hang out there. Um, you know, you know when we're out, the, when we're in Chinatown on the weekends in the 80s and 90s, it's don't go visit Uncle Wally. If you need to use the bathroom, just get in and get out. Don't Don't hang out there. And uh, while my dad had a lot of business in, in Chinatown, like I, I never really hung out at the restaurant that much because um, part of it was they just didn't want me hanging out at a restaurant because they wanted me to go to school and not see that part of, of, of life. And uh, the other part was just like, hey, um, there's just too much going on over there. Like try not to hang out with the wrong people in that, in that area. But um, Chinatown, it, it was really um, an interesting place for me. Um, it was just a lot of commerce and a lot of um, people buying produce and um, eating at restaurants and so on and so forth. And I, I really saw a, um, a change um, um, like in my early teens where, you know, the Chinatowns of Flushing and Brooklyn started to really... Um, grow and develop and and people in the Chinatowns in Manhattan were, um, were get really the people in Chinatown were actually getting pushed out because of like um, real estate issues and overcrowding and stuff like that sorry I'm coughing so much <laughs> I've got that thing that uh, everyone in New York seems to have right now yeah it's the, the weather right the um, not hot not cold yeah, exactly. Excuse me. Um, I want to uh, talk about your dad, actually, since you just brought him up. So yeah. they met in Hong Kong. Yes. And your dad, I've read, uh, you described his work ethic. Sounds tremendous. He had m many jobs at the exact same time. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that sort of uh, the coming to America experience for them? Sure, and sure. also where you grew up, where your parents lived, and uh, what did they do when you were a kid? Sure. Um, yeah, my dad is the is is a strip is a hustler. My dad's a hustler. I remember, um, you know, growing up in the you know I I was I grew up in the '80s, so I remember you know days like Saturdays and Sundays, you know, going to work with him. Um, it would it would consist of driving out into the city because we actually lived in Queens at the time. Um, driving into the city, parking the car in Tribeca, and just checking in on places. Like he had like a real, he had a um, travel agent agency office on Mott Street, so we would go there and like kind of settle in and figure out what we have to do for the day. Um, and then he was also like a pro, like he sold Chinese um, goods, like dry <coughs> goods, like mushrooms, like canned canned stuff from from Hong Kong and, and Asia. So he would kind of make his rounds into the restaurants. Like, like he, he seemed to know everyone. So every restaurant we passed, like, hey, good morning, what's up? Do you need anything? 
um, I got this new whatever, right? Like these new mushrooms from Japan or whatever. And um, at night, uh, him and his brother had a, um, a restaurant, a Chinese takeout restaurant on the Upper East Side in the 80s, um, 80-something street. And I would go with him there and he would kind of bag takeout and um, take orders and like bus tables. So like I would spend like 12 hours with him and it was nonstop um, from morning to night. And that's that's how that's how we live. Like, we, you know, I was a, a product of immigrant parents and that's what immigrant parents uh, did to survive. And so. I assume that they wanted a different path for you, maybe not three jobs at the same time, maybe not 18 hour work days. You ended up going to up, up you were going to a school in Queens, right? Yep. In high school, or did you go to school in Manhattan? I, I went to high school in Queens, grade school and high school in Queens, um, primarily because my parents wanted me out, out of Chinatown. So very early on, and, and it's so funny today, like we're coming here to uh, Roberta's and uh, I'm taking the L train and uh, it was very reminiscent of my youth because we used to live in Ridgewood and that's a couple of stops down on the L train on DeKalb. And it's not nearly as nice as it is today. Trust me, it's, it was a lot different uh, back in the day. And uh, yeah, I, 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 re- I grew up essentially in, in, in Queens from like grade school like to high school, like the a bulk of the years uh, living in Queens. I went to, I went to pr- a private school, uh, a Catholic school in, in Ridgewood. I went to Christ the King High School in Middle Village. Um, Queens, and it wasn't until college that I kind of fully immersed my immersed myself back into um, Manhattan and Chinatown, and I went to Pace University, which is just a stone's throw from Chinatown in, in uh, by City Hall. Yeah, Pace is very close, so you, yeah. you ended up kind of right back in the mix a little bit. Yes, comp- totally. And so, was it a your choice, a family choice, uh, to stay? in New York City to, to go to college? Uh, and w- what did you study I- in college? What, what were the... Did you make your choices about, about going to Pace and what you studied, or was it sort of partly dictated by your family a little bit? It, it was partly dictated. It's, you know, it, it's kind of my dad was steering me into that direction. Oh, you should do business. You know, do, like, finance and accounting. And, and you know, at that point, I kind of didn't have any other ideas of what I wanted to do. So I just kind of did that. I, I graduated with a finance degree, an economics degree at, at Pace University. So yeah, I, I, it wasn't really like, I didn't, I didn't aspire to like go into law or, or you know, anything like that. So um, my dad was like, hey, why don't you just do business? Like you can't go wrong with a business degree. So that's basically what I did. So you ended up at at Morgan Stanley. I did. I did. That was actually one of my first jobs out of college, um, and it was just you know, in 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 hindsight, like I I really kind of didn't think college did anything for me, but it it kind of like was the prerequisite of like getting that first job, quote unquote. So I did I did work at uh, Morgan Stanley as my first job out of uh, school, out of out of uh, Pace University. And um, I was there for a 
couple of years, three, four years. Um, I am, um, so I remember like going to work there, it was at the World Trade Center back then, um, when it was still here. Um, so I am, I am, if you can say a world, a 9-11 survivor. Um, and uh, that really kind of just taught me how to work with people, um, but it was really not what I was looking to be doing. Um, I kind of just did it for the sake of doing it to get the experience. But uh, I knew like very early on, I even like after while I was working there, that I, I needed to do something else. But I, I did it to just kind of make my parents happy. Uh, got this job, wore a suit to work. And so on. When when did you leave Morgan Stanley? And uh, did you know when you were at Morgan Stanley, wow, I really want to be in the restaurant business? Or was there a certain transition point later on down the line where you thought, uh, maybe Morgan Stanley's not for me, but uh, I see something else on the horizon? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really funny. I, I remember um, talking to my dad about like work and life, and I'm like, Dad, you know, this is this this kind of sucks, you know, like you know, I'm I'm basically a, a paper pusher in a in an office, you know, I I I clock in at nine, clock out at five. I um you know, I'm told when to go to lunch, it's either eleven or twelve. And, you know, of course I have my you know, and, and for him he's like, but you know, you have your weekends to yourself and you get two weeks vacation you start with two two weeks vacation and you get 401k i'm like cool but that you know like the 401k doesn't mean anything to me at when i'm a 20 year old so he he had this idea of like well why don't you kind of open a coffee shop um coffee shop looks like they make money you know you're essentially selling water and then if you make like buns and stuff like pastries like it's flour and water and I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And um, at the time, working at Morgan Stanley, I had a colleague that was out in San Francisco. Uh, so she was kind of like my counterpart in San Francisco, um, uh, Serena. And she had a friend, Becky, whose dad owned the bakery. And I reached out, I'm like, hey, what? I wonder if it's possible to kind of come to California and you know hang out and also kind of just work at a bakery and see how i like it he's like yeah of course just figure out how to get here and like you can come work at my dad's place it's like you're not gonna get paid but <laughs> you feel free to come and hang out <laughs> so i actually did that for nine months so i was living in san francisco um you know i kind of just rented a room at at at, at, at uh, serena's house and um i i it was in San Mateo, it was in uh, Santa Clara, so it was in like San Jose area, and I would just drive up into the city uh, every morning and learned how to bake bread and um, how 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 a kitchen works. And um, I came back, and um, my dad helped me find like a little space, and it was like a friend's building, and like they were really lenient on like. You know, it's, it's like every New York story. You got to know, like, a good landlord. <laughs> and um, it was like, hey, why don't you just try the bakery thing out here? And I and that's that's how it all started. And so that was called, that bakery was called Mr. Tall? Yeah, so I, so I'm, I'm really tall, so I'm, like, 6'5". And 
I had, I had, again, I had no idea what to name this bakery because it's like my first business and um, just I'm, I'm kind of working at, at this on my own. There's no like partners. Um, so my dad's like, why don't you just ask around, like ask, ask around like your peers and like other friends. And I'm like, hey, what do you think I should name my bakery? It's like, hey, you're tall. So why don't you just call him Mr. Tall? I'm like, okay, cool. Let's do that. And like, it wasn't really like a thought process to it, but like I became Mr. Tall. You know, this is like 2004 and this is pre like social media and pre internet. And it was just a little, you know, a coffee shop and, and bun spot, like in the Lower East Side, um, border, like same, same neighborhood that I'm in now, like be, between Lower East Side and uh, Chinatown. And, um, you know, I, th- I think one of the years um, we won the, the, the Village Voice uh, Award for most interesting restaurant name. <laughs> so that's my, that, that's my one thing that I got out of um, uh, a Mr. Tall's Bakery. You must have. You must have. It, it's no longer open. It, Correct. It yeah. did close, but yeah. you, there must have been some takeaways from this experience. Obviously, you go. You take a big risk to move to San Francisco. You leave the comfortable, uh, the four hundred one k behind, <laughs> and the the sort of like guaranteed payments of a of a of an office desk job career, uh, and then. You take this big risk of opening up this spot. It doesn't end up necessarily working out the way that that you want it. Uh, what did that? Uh, well, how did that make you feel? You know, when it when it wasn't a huge smash success. You're a young guy. Were you? Did it push you forward even more? Were you sort of terrified? How did you feel? It. Um, it. It was actually a period of very. Um, like I felt like failure. Um, I, I, I essentially dedicated, you know, four years of my life to, th- to this in like my prime, like in my, my mid twenties. And while everyone was out clubbing and, you know, you know, checking, you know, hanging out, right. Clubbing and stuff, you know, I'll, I'm at a bakery six in the morning, like baking. And, um, it, it just, you know, the dollars and cents didn't make make it you know like I'm like I can get paid more I was getting paid more working at a desk job than putting in 16 17 hours a day um so I'm like you know this is not this is not good so what 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 ended happening was we just I just kind of sold <coughs> I sold the business and um I remember the the first day back into a job it was actually with my accountant and my accountant Harvey was uh, very supportive of me. Of me, he's like, "Hey, uh, you know, you got the you've you've got a you've got a um, degree, uh, and if this if this stuff is not working out for you, why don't you just come and like try to work out work out of my office and see how it goes for you? Maybe we can take the route, the accounting route again, and so on and so forth." And I remember the first day I went to the office. Um, you know, nine, nine o'clock, I was there at 845 and like no one was there yet. So I call him. I'm like, hey, Harvey, I'm here. Um, you know, we're ready for my first day. He's like, why are you calling me? <laughs> like, you, you, you know, someone will be in soon. Like, don't call me. <laughs> and then I'm like, holy crap. I think I just made the biggest mistake of my life at that point because I, it, it meant it meant I had a boss again. It meant um, 
it, it meant I wasn't an entrepreneur anymore. And um, I, I, I remember that feel. I remember that feeling in that phone call, like it was yesterday. I'm like, oh man, I, I, I think I, I made a mistake by going back into, like, a corporate environment. We're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna talk more with Wilson Tang, and we're gonna start talking about how he took over Namwa Tea Parlor from his uncle Wally. Stick with us here on the line on Heritage Radio. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. Welcome back to The Line. I'm here with Wilson Tang. He's the owner and operator of Namwa and all of its offshoots around New York and also in Philadelphia. Let's start talking about Namwa. So you take it over from your Uncle Wally. You, right before the break, had said that uh, after kind of diving back into the, you know, professional, quote-unquote, the tie and desk job world, you'd made a massive mistake. Uh, so at a certain point, you end up talking to your Uncle Wally, and in 2011, you take over Namwa. What's that, that feel like to get back into the hospitality, restaurant, food game, and also uh, you're taking over something that has a huge amount of tradition associated with mm-hmm. it and a great amount of, of history. What are your feelings and what are your, what are your hopes in 2011 for, for Namwa? Well, I, I was, I, I mean, I remember, I, I also remember this at like, it, like it was yesterday, but you know, in, in that, during that break, um, you know, getting back into the corporate world, the desk job, you know, I, I, I really found myself, you know, I, I ended up meeting my my wife now, um, you know, I, I ran a bunch of marathons that really kind of answered some like personal goals that I had. And, and the timing was just perfect. Um, you know, my wife and I were, were just engaged and, um, about to get married. We were thinking about moving back to San Francisco because we both just love that city. And then my, my uncle just popped the questions like, Hey, um, I think I'm about to retire. Um, you should, I know you were into like baking and stuff. Maybe, maybe this could work out for you. Like, just like, don't, don't mess it up. Don't F it up. 
um, but you should you should consider. And I remember we were, we went to this other restaurant called Red Egg, which is on Center Street, which was a very kind of modern dim sum place. And we sat there. I'm like, why 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 did we come here? He's like, oh well, I wanted to let you know that like if you wanted Namwa to look like this, you know, like all kind of modern with the lights and and like design and stuff. We can do it like this, you know, so that you can just run it. You know, if you're young and you want to make the place look hip, we can totally do that. And, um, you know, I just need someone to take it over and continue the, the story because, um, you know, I, I'd be really upset if, if we just close the restaurant and, and it stops. I'm like, I would just keep it the way it is. Um, it's just, it, you know, it's old and dingy and crusty. Um, I would just clean it and... Um, you know, people die for like a restaurant to look like that, and you can't, it you can't fake it. You know, like you can't fake the patina. Like I'm like I would I would be totally happy running it uh, to to take it over. I would um, you know I had these thoughts of all day dim sum. I had these thoughts of um, dim sum for dinner. Um, you know, throughout throughout my um, childhood, dim sum was always this breakfast, lunch kind of thing. You wait on the weekends, and it's just a big ordeal. And and uh, there's always trying to fight for seats, and uh, there's always a lot of people. And I thought, like, hey, dim sum, I can actually do this breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's kind of like tapas if you're at a restaurant, a uh, Spanish restaurant. Um, it it worked great with beer and wine. Uh, I would totally like to serve a bunch of beer and um, get a get a couple of cool wines in in, in the st- in the restaurant, and uh, give it a try. Um, I had these thoughts of um, almost like a Chinese diner where you get a menu and um, you kind of kind of pick what you want. So I implemented these kind of little things that I was thinking about as a Chinese American kid, um, incorporating like the American side of of me into it, um, and we just gave it a whirl. Um, you know, 2011, we we opened in, we reopened in January. We spent we spent some money um, at the end of 2010 to kind of just clean up the space and like kind of get in new kitchen equipment. It was a very very minimal um, um, kind of expense or kind of um, reconstruction of sorts. And um, we opened in like February, right before uh, Chinese New Year in 2011. And I, at that point, um, like the internet was really going and like Facebook was a thing. And I was just like, you know, I'm going to open a Facebook page for, for the restaurant and kind of document the, the reopening. And that's when people started reaching out um, through through social media, uh, through Facebook, um, one one lady, uh, Gretchen was her name. Uh, she was like an editor at Daily News, and uh, she res- like she wrote me a message on our Facebook page, like, "Oh man, I I was going to this restaurant since I was eight years old, um, and you're kind of giving it new life. I gotta write a story about it." And lo and behold, like right before we opened, um, there was a two page like be- before any of the food was spoken about. There's this two-page thing, and I'm like, I got my arms are like crossed, like, and they they, they got a shot of me, in like on this. It's like I'm I'm on the centerfold of this of the Daily News on a Sunday, and um, that really kind of just put put us on the map. Um, that really got because the restaurant was so old, it got us um, all our old customers coming. Like, oh, I remember when 
coming here in the 60s, 70s, 80s, my grandfather, my great-grandfather used to take me here, and all those started coming back um, by, the, by the, the, the summer of 2011. And it was such a whirlwind experience for me. Um, you know, then all the, the, the press started coming. It was uh, Daily uh, it was, you know, uh, Wall Street Journal, it was uh, New York Times. And um, later that year in the summer, um, you know, first it was uh, Lagaya from New York Times wrote like the 25 and under at that point uh, that really kind of got the business going. And then two months after that, um, there was another article about just second generation kids coming back to the family business. And it was me again on the, cu- on the, on the front page of the dining section of the Times. Um, and I mean like, sh- like real chefs, like chefs like die for this kind of like coverage and this kind of like stardom or whatever you call it, right? And I was like, look at me, like, I'm this just Chinatown kid <laughs> that took over a restaurant and like I'm on the cover of the dining section. And uh, that really just kind of kickstarted the whole um, experience. I think I think um, I related more to like the American diner, uh, the meaning person that comes to eat. And um, it was just we, we made it easy: descriptions, food, um, beverage, um, you know, minimal, you know, your your Chinatown service, which is kind of quirky in itself. And uh, that really just kind of made uh, not put, put Namwa back on the map. It's it's amazing that it's been around for such a long time, and that you've been able to sort of revitalize it with now, without losing its original character. Now, as you begin to expand and take the name and sort of spin it off into these other entities, how thoughtful and careful are you of the original brand? And I ask that for two reasons: one, because you're from a business standpoint, you're mm-hmm. you're protecting a brand that you are now the guardian of. Yes. But also, how careful are you to protect those nostalgic memories that people have of the original Namwa? Like, if you would have changed the interior like Wally had yeah. suggested, it's possible that people would have never come back, right? Because they wouldn't have they wouldn't have felt like it's the place they right. went when There's they were no eight years old, yeah. right? So. How do you uh, travel down that, that path and, and do those things at the same time, like protect, but also you've been on an expansion tear. So how does that work inside your head? It's actually really, really hard. Um, in full transparency, um, it, 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 you know, we, we tried it in Philly uh, where we, we try to replicate the restaurant, you know, same red boots, um, you know, mid-century lighting, um, same wall color, um, it, it, it didn't pick up, um, you know, it's doing fine, but it's not raging or it's not doing what I expected. So it even, even, you know, I, my thought was, oh, it's going to be fine. It actually just turned out okay. Uh, and the further expansion, all the further expansion, it's, it's just, it's fine. Not, nothing has really been a big pop. Um, but I, I kind of, I kind of don't look into like I, this, and this is this thought process is always morphing. Um, we had in in the tea parlor in Chinatown, the, o, the OG, we had basically ran out of space to do production of our the food. We had to go into like almost a uh, commissary uh, 
uh, kitchen to just all the handmade uh, dumplings. And it was when we expanded into a commissary, now I'm producing too much. And I actually need to open little stores to kind of take up the product because we've we've built another business as the central kitchen. And in order for that to work, it needs to do way more volume. So I, I for me, like I, it wasn't really um, a thought process on like the satellite stores. It was more like, okay, how, how can I transition this into uh, a form of commerce? And it's not so much uh, restaurant driven. It's more like how do, how do we use the product so that this business can also be successful? So is the, view, is the future of Namwa in having the sort of, as you call it, the OG location anchor the brand and having satellite locations that are all kind of different and, and work in their individual spaces? Or do you have a... Do you have a dream to have uh, like a dumpling, a hundred dumpling kiosks that are Namwa, fast, casual, pick up at the counter dumpling kiosks like all over the United States? You know. Well, you know. How, how do you how do you visualize that that future of expansion? I, I really do um, have this picture of like multiple units, but I, I think just recently with the with this aggressive expansion that we that we've done. Um, I haven't really put a lot of thought process in like the human capital of it. Um, finding good people is to run your stores are, 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 is very, very hard. And so while I think like my mindset is still, yes, I want a bunch of stores at this moment, I, I, I really need to like settle down settle in and, um, kind of lay down the groundworks to make things successful. Um, so yes, I, I do want more stores, but sometimes honestly, like less is more, less is more. And if we can just figure out a good thing, you know, the, the team is happy, everyone's making money, uh, things are successful. Um, you know, less is more like just a few is good. I mean, I, I think I've finally come to that realization, like I'll, I'll, I'll do another one or one or two more, but it all has to feel right. And um, it's also just being able to keep up with, with, the, with the demand and the work because I kind of find myself like that's the issue that we're having now. Like, oh, they're, like, we, we, we can't produce as much or like this store needs more and we can't get it to them or this store needs less and we have extra and like it's hard to figure out. Do you have a like a pretty complicated logistics of delivery or do you have like a van that goes around? How do you get stuff to all? Cause you have five now yeah. in the city. So what's a, what is a normal like trajectory from uh, production to completion for like a hundred, a thousand dumplings or something like that? Yeah. So, so the production of it is for, for that is, is easy. Like it, it would be, it's a more of a logistics thing, right? So we, we have, guys on on foot with hand trucks if it's close we have a car uh that can do the delivery we have a we use like a um we'll have we also have like a like a suv that we can kind of ship down to philly as well so i i mean we're, we're still trying to figure it all out um you know we have i have aspirations of going into like another um market like florida or something and you know trying to figure out how all those logistics will work 
Do you have uh, investors in the group with you as you went from Namwa Tea Parlor into all these satellites? Mm-hmm. Did you bring in anyone either from from just sort of a, a business mentoring side or an actual investor side to to help along with this process? Well, I didn't take on any investors. I did take on like a part, a business partner to help uh, run the satellite store. So, like, there's equity. Um, th- you know, he has equity in in those locations, um, and similar to like uh, Namwa Tu, formerly Feng Tu, um, the the chef has equity, of course, um, in that in that in that particular store. So, I'm I'm actually very open with the with the equity piece. I I feel like. That's almost uh, a driver for like the individual to make that individual place successful. And so, with uh, with Jonathan, when you sort of swap that restaurant, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that process? Uh, how did that how did that come to be? And th- it just recently happened. Yeah, yeah, so, recent, how has recent. it how has it been going? That that restaurant was different before the swap and now different after the swap than what then Namwa Tea Parlor is. So if you can explain to people that have never been to either one, what's that kind of differential like? Yeah, so uh, Namwa 2, which is our latest kind of brainchild uh, in the Lower East Side, uh, formerly Feng Tu, which was a more elevated Chinese uh, Chinese restaurant in the Lower East Side, we, we decided to, to rebrand that uh, restaurant because it, it's been four years, uh, three and a half years. And, you know, our business was just kind of flat. You know, it was just it just gets by. And um, it was really a strategic move to kind of fit the neighborhood better. I think the neighborhood, um, you know, the people that live in the, in the neighborhood, you know, more than 50 percent of their income goes towards rent. And they really don't have um, the capacity to dine at a restaurant of that caliber. So our, our thought process was to kind of inject the, the Namwa brand into it, but also kind of lower the expectations of, um, of A, the food, and just change the vibe up so that it's more like a, a drinking establishment uh, instead of this kind of upscale Chinese restaurant. Um, so it's been working pretty good so far. Um, I see a lot of repeat customers because our price points are lower. Uh, it's just a more casual, you can come in for a beer and some dumplings, you know, you'll spend, you'll spend less than 20 bucks, but you can also get like a nice bottle of uh, natural wine, um, and add, 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 add a couple of things from the menu and you know, you'll, you're, you're now at 40 or $50 or, or even more. So I think what we, what we did was kind of just be more smart about it and be able to uh, have a bigger reach uh, of clientele. Um, and, and certainly for more people that live in the neighborhood, uh, I see those, those kind of people coming in and uh, repeat customers, which we, which we weren't getting um, at, at Feng Tu. You know, busy weekends, but like, you know, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're, we're always like a drag. You had a, a first start with with a restaurant business, it didn't go so well. Now, after many years uh, being at the head of the the Namwa restaurant group, do you consider this second chapter? Do you consider yourself successful now? I think I am fairly successful. Um, I think there's a lot more room for improvement. 
Um, I think um, my ultimately my my success would be um, in the growth of uh, the individuals that either work for me or like partner with me. So I'm very much in like a mentoring state right now. It's not it's not about me anymore. Um, I think I did well um, in my ten years uh, in my one lease term, right? Um, but I, I, I think the future success is really reliant on the people in my organization and how to mentor and grow these individuals and bring on more individuals that are like-minded. Um, but it's, it's really not about me anymore. It's, it's really about um, the people that I surround myself and seeing their growth uh, and their success. As Namwa comes up on 100 years and... Your Uncle Wally bought it in 74. I'm curious, uh, do you have a lease there? Do you own the building? H- how are you uh, looking towards the future as you see in the restaurant market in New York City? Even Danny Meyer gets kicked out of yeah. some of his spaces. H- how are you going to protect your business going forward? So I do have a lease. Um, you know, I, I it's coming. It's I've got a couple of I got I have like another five years on it. Um, my thought process on that is nothing's guaranteed. Um, you know, family or not, um, this is at the end of the day a business. Um, I, I hope to keep it going. Uh, there's a lot of factors involved. Um, but I, I'm kind of hedging my bets that it'll, it'll go well, but I'm, I'm, I'm also not banking on it. So that is also, um, one of the reasons why we've kind of went with the, with the expansion model, you know, we we've we've tied in, especially in Philadelphia, where where things are slightly more affordable. We we tied in purchasing the uh, the premise with the that the Philadelphia store is at. Uh, we just purchased another um, uh, premise in Philadelphia, and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. So, um, yeah, I I think New York is a little too big for me. Um, so we're gonna look into like a secondary market to actually purchase the real estate first before we actually do anything with it last question your parents weren't too excited about you getting into your your dad and your uncle's business you have two young kids if down the line they said they showed a lot of interest would you be excited or would you be terrified about them taking over for you one day down the line I, I would be totally stoked. Um, I, I think this business and this line of business takes a lot of um, hard work and and um, and a lot of passion. Um, I, I kind of don't see it these days, like the, the especially the hard work part of it. Um, you know, we're in an industry that there's a lot of noise, and it's a very hot industry right now. And um, you know, everyone has all these options. Um, I hope to see like my kids grow up and see the time that I put into my own business and 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 learn from that and be able to put in the hard work and to see it see them take it to another chapter. Maybe they're the ones that can get us into you know fifty stories or whatever. Not 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 in my lifetime, but maybe for them they could. Wilson, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your story about Namwa. Uh, can you give the address for the original and uh, and tell everyone where they can find you? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Namwa Tea Parlor, um, the original store uh, established in 1920, is located at 13 Doyer Street. Uh, that is the the cross street for that is Bowery and Pell. Um, easily accessible by 
public transportation, uh, NR6 uh, to Canal Street and a short walk from there. Yeah, and it's, it's awesome. It's, it's a real incredible experience and the food is, of course, delicious. Uh, and you've got a bunch of other spots all around New York City and Philadelphia. They can find those online. Go to the, to the Namwa website and you can check out all the satellites uh, on, that, on that website. Thanks again for joining us and uh, come listen next week for another episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 